The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Today's Gospel is one of those Gospels that is a little hard to hear. Especially after we pray the opening or collect for the day, that includes the phrase, both a sacrifice for our our sins and an example of godly life. And it's natural to wonder, is Jesus really portraying a godly life in how he's treating this woman? He seems almost mean. How are we to rightly understand it? Well, I'd like to begin by explaining how we should not understand it. Because there has developed in recent years, perhaps the last decade or so, an interpretation of this passage that basically says, yes, Jesus was a victim of his time and of his culture. And he was just as xenophobic as the rest of his Jewish brothers and sisters. 
And so he was being quite honest in how he was treating this woman at this point in time. But the woman's great faith brings him to a point of great conversion where he realizes that God's love truly is for everyone. Now, that's an interpretation that um, probably says more about our modern prejudices and agendas than it really says about the faithful interpretation of Scripture. It suits those who would say that the Bible is hopelessly patriarchal because this, it is a woman who brings him to this conversion in Jesus' life. And it also uh, implies that if Jesus himself was continuing to receive revelations through his ministry, then why shouldn't we expect remarkable revelations to come right down to the current day, leading us in totally new directions that seem to be a break with the past? The problem with this interpretation of Jesus' encounter with the Canaanite woman is that in the same Gospel of Matthew, seven chapters before this incident takes place, Jesus has another encounter with a Gentile, with a Roman centurion who was concerned about a deathly ill servant of his, and he would like Jesus to come and to heal him. And Jesus doesn't hesitate. Here is a Gentile, and what does he do? He offers to go to the man's home to heal his servant. You can't have Jesus accepting a Gentile in chapter 8 and then say that Jesus was basically xenophobic or afraid of anybody who wasn't like the Jews in the 15th chapter. It just doesn't work. No, the traditional interpretation is the correct one. And the traditional interpretation of this passage is that from the beginning, Jesus was able to see this woman's faith. She cried out. She cried out to Jesus. He could see her faith. And he realized that he could test it as a way of demonstrating and dramatizing the fact that God's love really is intended for all who come by faith. That's how the gospel ends. Woman, you have shown such great faith. All of our lessons today really talk about that simple truth that God's design from the beginning was that Israel should be a light unto the nations so that in the end all peoples will come to God and they will come by one simple means by putting their faith and their trust in him we hear it in the first lesson and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants 
all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And in the psalm, let your ways be known upon earth, your saving health among all nations. Let the nations be glad. May all the ends of the earth stand in awe of him. Even in our epistle lesson today, which usually following its own sequence doesn't always go along with the Old Testament and the gospel, but here at the end of Paul's argument about um, whether God has been faithful to the Jews uh, in the coming of Christ and the receiving of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God through faith, says this, for God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy toward all. And of course, Matthew, woman, how great is your faith. It really is a very simple message. But oh, how hard we make it for ourselves. How hard we make it for ourselves. The Pharisees made it very hard for themselves, leading to the encounter that our gospel starts with today. One of many, many, many encounters with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were really very pious people, and they were zealous for the Lord. But it was a kind of misplaced effort on their part because of their piety, because of the love of their Lord, trying to um, to make themselves perfect according to the law. The law had 613 some odd commandments uh, to begin with. And then all kinds of questions arose. Thou shalt do no work on the Sabbath. Well, what constitutes work? You know, if you, if you walk and you start to get hot and sweaty and you have to go uphill and it's an effort. At, at what point do you say, wait a minute, this is work. We're supposed to be resting today. And so they had to define a Sabbath day's journey. It's one reason that Jews tend to congregate together so that they can be close to their synagogues and be able to walk there on the Sabbath. Um, and then, you know, all kinds of other interpretations that ended up with the force of law. And so the whole thing was like a, a monster that could eat you up trying to be righteous before God by your own efforts. It's easy to say, well, that's extreme and we know that it doesn't work that way. But the fact of the matter is that all of us tend to make it harder than it needs to be. We may not have quite as many control needs as the Pharisees had, but there is something in many of us, if not all of us, that still likes to keep some control over our lives. And to turn our lives over to Christ is to allow someone else to be in control and not ourselves. 
And then there are the pretenses of our lives, that public persona that we show to the rest of the world so that we can come across the way we need to come across rather than perhaps the way we truly are. There is that part of us that does not want to be humble, that does not want to be meek because we think weak means meek means weak. And so we are afraid to give up our pretensions. And then there are those sins that we hold so dear. Those sins, it may only be one or two that stands in the way of our relationship with God, but they are sins that we just enjoy a little bit too much or allow to have just a little too much control of us. C.S. Lewis did a wonderful study, you might call it, in this dynamic of making salvation hard for ourselves in his book called The Great Divorce. The story is based on the idea that people in hell can take a bus trip to the very entrance gates of heaven and they don't have to go back. And yet, sadly, the story that he writes shows how one by one almost every single person chooses to go back to hell rather than enter into heaven. And it's all because of this sin or that sin that they just hold so dear. Maybe as simple as a grudge against another person that they simply are not willing to forgive. They'll get on the bus and go back to hell rather than let it go and be forgiving and enter into the kingdom of God. We make it hard on ourselves. And then there is the fact that as human fallen people, we tend not to like change. And the fact of the matter is that when we come into a relationship with Christ, we're going to change. Paul says we have a new identity in Christ. Now think about that for a minute. Because an identity is an amazingly complex thing. It's made up of all our interactions with everybody around us and with society as a whole, and we kind of grow up into a given identity that's based on how we interact with people, and then suddenly you throw something that begins to really change things, change how I respond to other people, and then that means they have to change how they respond to me. And the whole identity that has become so comfortable for myself suddenly becomes uncomfortable as a new identity is expressed in my life, having accepted Christ into it. Many ways that we make it hard, the simple issue of entrance into the kingdom of God by putting our hope and trust 
in God's mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. And we make it so hard. We need to remember the faith of this Canaanite woman. Now, to be clear, she was facing an issue in her life that drove her beyond her pretensions and her need for control. She knew she wasn't in control. Her daughter was very, very ill, and she desperately needed help. She had no pretensions. And whatever sins, she was ready to be done with them as well. She comes to Jesus, knowing in faith that he could help. And he did. Now, we need to remember that all the healings of Jesus were but foretastes of the heavenly kingdom. Even his miracles of raising people from the dead simply returned those people to life in this world. They both would have to die again. I think it's important to remember that we need to look to the fuller meaning of what has happened here in this encounter with the Canaanite woman. William Barclay is helpful in that regard because he points out that this going of Jesus into Gentile territory was something that occurred just as he was beginning to turn his face toward Jerusalem for that final pilgrimage and for that final and ultimate battle to open salvation to all, not only for this world, but for the next. He knew his many followers would not want to go into Gentile territory following him. And so it would give him an opportunity to be um, reflective and to um, continue to prepare his disciples for what was to come. But it was that final battle, that final battle that tested his obedience unto death, a sacrifice of obedience that he won by going to the cross and thereby opening the kingdom of God to all, Jew and Greek. It is that marvelous salvation that offers life beyond this life, that offers an unbreakable relationship with God, that is the great gift that is being highlighted today. It is a gift that is really very simply received. And all that Christ bids us do is says, don't make it hard for yourselves. Be willing to let go and let God. Be willing to trust the grace of God as shown in our Lord Jesus Christ and his victory over sin and death that mercy might be poured out to all. That mercy was offered to that Canaanite woman. 
It was offered to all the people of that day. It is offered to people down through history to this very day. It is offered to you and to me. And the Lord just says, come. Come in faith. Amen.